It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Uh, welcome to Rico Bronia. The Mets have lost three games in a row, including getting humbled by the Houston Astros with back-to-back losses, including arguably the worst loss of the year on this Wednesday afternoon when Jason Castro and his 105 batting average It's a two-run bomb off of Drew Smith. But I actually want to calm everybody down. I want everybody to take a big, deep breath together, okay? All together, (sighs) okay? Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to spend the next 30 minutes or so bitching about the issues the Mets have. Uh, It doesn't mean I'm going to say there's nothing wrong here, no one's got anything to worry about. But I do want to start off with reminding everybody something. This team has lost three in a row for the first time all year. It was going to happen. Like, there was going to be a stretch of games where the New York Mets did not play well. And whatever part of the last few weeks you want to pick up, if you want to do the last two days against Houston, fine. If you want to do the West Coast trip, plus the good homestand, plus the bad road trip, and say, hey, they've played 500 ball over the last 24 games, which is fact, fine if you want to go back and look at the last seven games and say they've lost five out of seven fine they haven't played great baseball no one's going to deny that but let's not act like this wasn't going to happen like you don't go through a baseball season without slumping I mean you just don't you don't go through a baseball season in which every game you hit with runners in scoring position you don't go through a baseball season where you don't have the kind of stretch of games they've had over the last few days, especially against a really good team. Now, one thing I'm not going to accept, because I've seen this crap talked about on Twitter from Yankee fans, it should not occur from a Met fan who's trying to be honest about their team. And that's, see, they can't beat good teams. They can't compete with the Astros. Can't compete with the Astros. They played four games against the Astros, In three of those four games, the starting pitchers were named Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Williams. All right? In the game that didn't include Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Williams, the finale of this two-game series, Taiwan Walker was awesome. I mean, he pitched his ass off and appeared to be pissed off when he was taken out of this game in the eighth inning. And we'll get to some of Buck's decisions because I got one major issue with the finale. But just an overarching thing here. Yeah, they're not playing well. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But we cannot act as if the Mets were never going to have a slump. Like the Mets were never going to go through a 12-game stretch or a 24-game stretch where they're 12-12 and or a seven-game stretch where they've lost five out of seven or a stretch of games in which you play four out of seven against the three-time American League champion Astros and lose to them. And quite frankly, I, the, the idea that they've lost to the Astros four times They can't beat the Astros. Number one, who gives a rat's ass, okay? The odds are very low they play the Astros again, and if they do, we'll be so gassed up that the Mets won the pennant that we're not going to give a crap about four games in June. We're not. 
And if you do care about four games in June, I would remind you that what you do in a season series means nothing when you face a team in the postseason. So the idea that you should worry about, well, you know, Evan, well, who cares if they sweep the Rangers? They lost to the Astros. Who gives a crap? This is a contest about winning the National League East, okay? That's the only priority right now during this regular season. Can they win the National League East? And right now, the Atlanta Braves are coming. There's no doubt. It's a three-game lead. But as I said to you last time on the Rico, and I would have said six weeks ago on the Rico, this is going to be a pennant race. This is not going to be a demolition, despite when the Mets had a huge lead. I guess it was now a month ago. So before we break down the issues of this team and the things they can do to change it and the mistake Buck Showalter made in game two of this series, I just want everybody to take a nice, big, deep breath. Because while I'm a Met fan who may be negative at times, and I didn't feel good about this series, Craig and I talked about it going into it, so I'm not surprised they lost two games in a row. We cannot freak out and say, see, same old Mets. And I'll be honest with you. They've got three games against Texas. They got three games against Cincinnati. They got another four games against Miami. Okay, that's a 10-game stretch against teams. I know Texas has played a lot better, but against teams that they should beat. The Rangers are a 500 team. The Cincinnati Reds, while they were never going to rival the 62 Mets with the start they got off to, they're not a good team. And the Marlins, as we've seen in the games the Mets have played against Miami, they can beat them. If they went out over these next 10 games and lost 8 out of 10, yeah, I'd worry. No doubt. Then I'd say, okay, now I'm starting to get a little worried. But I'm not going to freak out over the fact that the Houston Astros won four games against them. The Astros are very good. We get it. We get it. Have the Mets dominated really good teams this year? No. They lost two out of three to the Padres. They split with the Dodgers. They did have success against the Brewers and Cardinals, who I would call pretty good teams. I mean, the Brewers are 11 games above 500. The Cardinals are 10 games above 500. But the truth is, when you face really good teams, you want to be, you, you want to play a little bit above 500, Paul. Now, that's a reasonable goal. You're not going to dominate the really good teams. And again, I, I feel like I'm going to have to say this a lot. You can't look at what the Yankees are doing. The Yankees are having an incredible season. They are matching the 98 Yankees pace, and that's remarkable. And this isn't a Yankee podcast. We're not going to debate how good they are. But I'm just going to remind you, you can't look at the Mets' success and measure it against the Yankees. They're not the Yankees. The Yankees are having a dream season. So we all got to take a big, deep breath and not hit the panic button. Did game two of this series kind of go into our rankings? Pete and I probably have of worst loss of the year. Yeah, it's a horrible loss. No doubt. I'd put it at number one. You want to put it at number one, Pete? This loss to Houston, worst loss of the year. Yeah, it sucked a lot, and it definitely has to be, no matter what. J- when Jason Castro hits the winning home run, yes. You, you know, Jason Castro hitting a two-run game-winning home run in the ninth inning of Drew Smith sucks. You know, if Altuve hits that home run, I think we'd look and say, all right, well, he's an all-time great player. Altuve didn't even kill the Mets in this series. That's the funny part. <laughs> I mean, he was, let me look at my scorecard. He was 0 for 3 today till he got hit in the eighth inning. And in game one of this series, before he was pulled, he was 0 for 2. So the Mets handled Jose Altuve. The, they couldn't handle Jordan Alvarez. In fact, the only guy who could was Jeremy Pena. I was waiting to say that joke. <laughs> but yes, when Jason Castro 
with two outs in the ninth inning, hits a two-run home run off Drew Smith. It sucks. But you know what, Pete? They couldn't score a freaking run. I mean, ultimately, when you look at what happened in these two games against Houston, they scored one run, and it came on a bases-loaded walk down 9 nothing in the ninth inning. That's what they did offensively in this series. So, I agree. The headline is Jason Castro. He's a 108 hitter, whatever the hell his batting average was until he hit that two-run home run. You're going to have to score some runs. And much like what happened, I don't want to mix these two games up, but maybe I should. Maybe we should just recap both games because the first game was just an ass-kicking. But the Mets lost the first game in the first inning. And it wasn't necessarily the Kyle Tucker three-run home run that made it 4 nothing. That That's a big part of it, don't get me wrong. But where they really lost the game is that in the bottom of the first inning, and I said this to my dad, I was at both games. I said to him, look, look, the odds are they're probably going to lose this game, but go get a run in the bottom of the first inning. You don't have to get all four. Get a run in the bottom of the first inning, and you start to chip away. And then maybe if Carlos Carrasco can settle down, more on him in a few minutes, and his bitching and excuses, which I thought was sad. Made me want to cry. I felt so bad for him. But if you can get a run here and Cookie can settle down, you have a baseball game. When Starling Marte rips that double in the first inning and then Lindor does nothing and Alonzo does nothing, that was the game. Yes, the four runs in the first, but also not being able to get a big hit in the bottom of the first When If you remember the finale of the series against the Marlins, a series that we looked at and said, ah, they won two out of three, it's okay. Remember how they lost that finale? They lost three to two, and they went one for 13 with runners in scoring position. So you start this series against Houston by doing the same crap. And I'll give you another spot. Fourth inning. Even though Carrasco had given up another run to make it 4 nothing, when the immortal Jake Myers had a little rolling single, here come the Mets. They got two on and nobody out. Okay, you can make this thing a game. We've seen the Mets' ability to come back. It's not as if this game is over. They're not quite the Yankees in coming back, but they have come back in games. Two on, nobody out. Alonzo hits that roller to second. Altuve makes a great defensive play. But all right, it's not over yet. You got second and third, one out. You get a base hit, it's a 5-2 to two game. And J.D. Davis, mister, just throw the freaking guy a fastball. He can't hit it. Strikes out. And I'm telling you right now, do not at me with his hard hit rate. I don't want to hear it. I don't give a crap. I don't want to curse. I don't give a crap about the... Yeah, that's right. You said it. (laughs) Damn right. I don't want to hear about analytics if it doesn't turn into production. The hard hit rate is supposed to tell me he's hit into bad luck, Evan. Don't worry. Okay. Well, when does that turn into something? He's at 240 with 14 RBIs and in a big spot with second and third and one out, struck out. So I'm sorry. I'm not telling you hard hit rate doesn't mean anything. I'm saying I don't want to hear it about J.D. Davis anymore. And then Escobar had a pretty good at-bat drill walk. He still sucks, by the way. And Marcana grounds out. And that's another moment where the game is over. It's 5 nothing. Framber Valdez is going to get through it. And then, obviously, they pour the gas on. Jason Treve is terrible. Uh, and Carlos Carrasco overall was terrible. I thought he was settling in. But then, obviously, once he got pulled in the fifth inning and Buck said, I've seen enough, Jason Treve came on and said, I'm going to pour gasoline on the fire. And so, game one was really, and I mentioned the moments, that was it. Because after that, it was a blowout. 
after that, I'm sitting there at City Field just rooting that no idiot's going to start the wave. And luckily, nobody did. Now, before I get to the issues that continued in game two, when you suck, just say you suck. It's one thing I give Eduardo Escobar credit for. Eduardo Escobar's had a terrible year, but he's admitted, eh, you know what? Hasn't been good. It's been disappointing. I know I can be better. If you're Carlos Carrasco and Jose Altuve on that check swing, whatever, ball strike, I don't, you know, I don't even care. But let's say it was a strike. Let's say it was a swinging strike and Siegel missed the call. You cannot, if you're Carlos Carrasco, cite that play as, well, that was it. That really screwed the whole game up. Well, look, you almost got a double play to the next batter on the next pitch. Then you gave up a base hit to Jordan Alvarez. Then you gave up a base hit to Alex Bregman. And then Kyle Tucker hit a ball that still hasn't landed. You can't explain that those things happened because of one bad call. I thought that was very, very lame on Carlos Carrasco's part. And I don't know if Jose Altuve swung. I haven't bothered to go back and look at the replay because, quite frankly, it's irrelevant. And I remember earlier this season, the Jets played a game in London. Earlier this season, last year, Jets played a game in London. And I was angry with Craig because Craig made these grandiose Jet predictions. He kept saying, ah, they're going to win 10 games. And I said, how, could they, how are they going to win 10 games? I mean, I, explain this one to me. And I'm sure a lot of it was shtick, and that's okay. But it still annoyed me. So the Jets play that London game. And there was a bad call on the opening drive of the game. I think there was a third down. Jets are on defense. And they called a defensive pass interference, extended the drive. And I think the Falcons kicked the field goal. Something like that. It was a, it was a bad call, no doubt. And so on Monday, we come in. We're doing the show. And Craig says, and, and he's kidding. That's the point of this. Craig was effing around. He says, they lost the game because of the bad call. And I said, what are you talking about? It was the first quarter. It was one bad call. I was like, well, Evan, that changes everything. <laughs> everything could be different. I mean, we could play the butterfly effect with everything in life. Like, you could play that game, but it's a stupid game to play, and it's a loser game to play. And I don't think Carlos Carrasco is a loser. I think Carlos Carrasco is, a, is an awesome dude. I like him. I just think he had a bad moment. And that bad moment was blaming a non-check swing call on why he was terrible. And he's been bad for a while now. We've mentioned there have been good performances, mostly good performances, and then he'll throw in the bad ones and he'll bring up his ERA. But lately, they've all been bad. He has really, really struggled. And look, this Astro team is a, is a capable offense. But when you look at their stats this year overall, they're not, they're not scoring five runs a game. You know what I mean? Like... Alex Bregman's had a very down season. Uh, Jordan's a beast. I get it. Altuve's still a star. I get it. But despite what the Astros have done to the Mets and even what the Astros to a degree did to the Yankees, you know, they're scoring 4.3 runs per game. So let's not act like they were facing murderer's row here. And he got his ass kicked twice. So is there a level of concern for Carlos Carrasco at this point? Sure. I mean... Yeah, and look, we added about Chris Bass, and I think Chris Bass has eliminated it. But there does come a time where there's a sample size where you say, okay, guy's pitching like crap, I'm worried. Hopefully he's healthy. Hopefully it's not a back spasm issue. But what went so wrong in game one was not just Carrasco being terrible, but like I mentioned, they couldn't get a big hit. And that really continued from what happened in the finale against Miami that 
was frustrating, but we kind of threw away as, ah, they won the series. It's not a big deal. As far as this afternoon game was concerned, and I, I have to admit, so this was the SNY sweet game where Craig and I and a bunch of our coworkers, not named Pete Hoffman because Pete was working. Pete was filling in for us today. And you did a marvelous job. I heard from a, a very reliable source who said it was an incredible show. Yeah. No. Yes. In fact, I you know don't what believe happened? you. I'm going to tell you who the reliable source was. I'm just going to spill it out. Pete Hoffman. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. True story then. Yes. <laughs> I said, Pete, how was the show? He said, it was amazing. <laughs> I'm sure it was, though. I, and by the way, the only reason I didn't listen is I was pissed off after the Met game. So I was like, I wasn't turning on the radio. You should have listened. That's the point, though, is that that moment I made it about the Mets and a lot of Mets fans called and they were furious with me. And that's what we needed. We needed a little bit of a, a well, rehab session. Well, let me ask you something. <clears throat> right, you've, you've heard me diatribe for 15 minutes. What? Am I wrong? Like, are you panicking? Were you going on the radio after this game? Which we'll, we'll break down in a little bit. Were you panicking? Is the sky falling? Like, what, what were you saying? Uh, no, exactly. I actually said, it's not, the sky's not falling, but you have a great opportunity right here to kind of make amends and make a move and not bring in Ender and, Saint, and, and Ciarte and a, someone with an impactful bat. And, and I basically said... Francisco Alvarez needs to make the call, get the call. He needs to be part of this lineup. And it's like we talked about last podcast. It's not about saving the day. It is to see what you have for the next two or three weeks. Because right now, Dom Smith, a dead bat. J.D. Davis, a dead bat. Eduardo Escobar, dead bat. This guy's got pop. He's got 17-plus home runs. I think he hit another one today. He did. Bring him up. Bring him up. And It's time. And- and not only did he hit one today, Pete, he caught Max Scherzer. And I don't care about Max Scherzer's line. I know he didn't pitch all that great. Who cares? He threw 80 pitches. He's ready to go. My hope is that Max had a good experience working with him and actually comes back to the Mets and says, hey, by the way, kid's ready. You know, I, and I actually had a great time working with him. He called a good game. Now, I'm assuming he called a good game. I have no idea. Maybe Max hates his guts. I don't know. But it doesn't hurt that Max Scherzer was caught by Francisco Alvarez. And you're right. The only thing that, I don't want to say I disagree with you, but because this offense has cooled off as much as it has, I think he would be looked at not as a savior, but as someone to help save the offense because the offense has sucked, you know? And, and that's why I said I made a point saying, like, I, I'm, this is not a saving moment. We don't need Francisco Alvarez to come in and, like, oh, my goodness, because we're still 18 games over 500. We're still three and a half games elite. Well, for three games now because of the Braves won. Three games in front in the, in the in the division. This is not like a, oh, my goodness, the sky is falling. It's more of a, hey, if he gives us two weeks and it's like, dude, this guy is legit, then when the trade deadline comes, we don't need to go and search for more back. Oh, 100%. 100%. And here's what's funny. So we're doing the SNY sweet game today and I'm sitting in the suite and I'm watching the game and there was a point in the game in which the architect says hey can you talk to some uh what's the uh, some sponsors yeah talk to some sponsors do a little schmoozing and I look at him and I say it's zero zero in the sixth inning is this really the moment you want me to do this but I'm a good company guy so I do it 
All right. So I do. But trust me, the story is going to become relevant in a second. So I'm doing some smoothing. It's okay. It's now Edwin Diaz is coming into the game in the eighth inning. And I'm like, oh, my God, my head is spinning. But I ran into uh, an unnamed med executive. Okay. Unnamed med executive. And when I meet with med executives, which I very rarely do, I'm very opinionated. Okay. It's the one thing Beningo taught me in the day. I don't just say, oh, great to see you with some corporate BS. I tell them what's on my mind. So when I run into an unnamed med executive in a 0-0 game in the seventh inning in which Tomas Nitto can't hit, Dom Smith can't hit, even though that 12-pitch at-bat was fun, do you imagine, Pete, what I said to the unnamed med executive? I mean, it can't be anything too spectacular. It can't be anything that's less than this is effed. No, I was specific. I barked an order, Pete. You'd be very proud of me. I said, where the hell is Francisco Alvarez? (laughs) (laughs) And what I got was, this is what I, and I'm not saying there's any kind of breaking news, but I did get a response. I got a, there's an internal debate, you know, which is probably out there anyway, because the person I spoke to was in favor of Francisco Alvarez coming up. Now, maybe he was, appeasing me maybe it was I don't want to argue with this raging lunatic in the middle of a mech game but he agreed but it's not there's a group think going on and so the the positive I take out of that is they're debating it and I think that the Mets are going to soon realize and I'm okay with Mark Vientos too I know Francisco Alvarez is the most talked about guy because he's the sexier prospect and the bigger prospect but and I do like the Alvarez appeal of catching him, even if it's only a few days a week, plus DHing him. Like you have both of those options as compared to Vientos, who could very well be your third baseman, but we clearly don't see an answer at catcher. Tomas Nito can't hit as solid as he is defensively, and James McCann can't hit as solid as he is defensively. So I think Alvarez, for plenty of good reasons, is the preferred guy. But I'd be excited about Vientos coming up too. So I do get the sense that this is being talked about. And that it's a fair debate. And that's why Scherzer going down there matters. And it's why this slump, and it's a slump, it's an offensive slump this team has gone through, also matters. Because now you say, all right, it's late June. The lead's down to three games. It's not a panic move. But to your point, Pete, of seeing what we have, let's see what we have. Otherwise, we're going to be screaming about making a trade for a bat. If you have a bat already here that can be productive, it's less that you have to trade for at the deadline. So I'm not telling you he's going to be called up tomorrow, but it's absolutely on their radar. And I would call him up tomorrow. I don't see any reason not to at this point. No, I I agree 100%. And that's why, by the way, he was definitely appeasing you because if you chose to say the guy's name, he wants to be pro-Alvarez. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Like, could he actually have said, no, he's not ready, kid? I mean, I guess he could have. Hey, Evan, you don't know what you're talking about. He's not ready. And and look, Pete, we don't know if he's ready defensively. I admit that. But there's a DH in this league, and the Mets don't have a good DH right now. So even if it's only catching him once or twice a week, or maybe more, but mostly DHing him, it's just about getting his bat in the lineup because there are three, I'm holding up my fingers, Three weak spots in this lineup. Catcher, third base, and DH. And Pete, they're not adding three bats at the trade deadline. That's not realistic. So if one of the guys can be an internal at-bat, 
that makes life a hell of a lot easier. And it's embarrassing that a DH is one of the the, the bad, the sour spots in the lineup. That's embarrassing because we talked about that for years. I can't wait for the Mets to get a DH. We have so many players that can't field as well, but they could definitely hit. And now you have J.D. Davis or Dom Smith basically stinking up the joint. It's embarrassing. They it is. And, and look, the, their lineup of Nimmo, Marte, Lindor, Alonzo, and then on most days, McNeil is fine. It's very good, but you can't be overly reliant on it. And I think over the last few games, when you look at this offensive slump they're in, it's because those guys aren't tearing it up. Well, guess what? Francisco Lindor clearly is not going to tear it up every single day. And even Pete Alonso is having a great year. He's going to have a series in which he goes 0 for 6. You can't sit there being overly reliant on it because after you get through those five guys, on days McNeil's hitting fifth like he did in the Verlander game, there's a drop-off. Luis Guillerme has absolutely quieted down offensively in a short sample size. Dom Smith has never hit. J.D. Davis's hard hit rate is high, but nothing else is. Um, it's just not a very good lineup five through nine. So why not give it a jolt? The, the, the second game of this series, though, was very similar as the first game in terms of the first inning killed him. Okay, first inning killed him. Taiwan Walker pitches a one, two, three first inning. And Brandon Nimmo, and you can see this was the Mets' strategy against Verlander, hacks first pitch, double. Get a leadoff double against Justin Verlander. And I said it at the time to anyone who would listen, inside the SNY suite, beautiful suite, gotta love it. Very spoiled. Now I want to sit there all the time, especially when they bring you Shake Shack and you never have to get up. It's a very bougie, bougie game, but we did have a tailgate right before the game, and I do have to commend Craig Carton. He pulled it off. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even want to have a tailgate, but he got the meat. He had friends bring the meat. There was a grill. All I did was bring cups, and I had a catch with everybody, which was a lot of fun. I did have a catch with everybody. Anyone I heard. Catch? I asked. Someone called in and said they, the, the tailgate was amazing, and I asked them specifically what was the deal? Did Evan have a catch? And he's like, yes, but you brought in a ringer. What was that about? I brought, what does that mean? I brought someone, a ringer. You had someone like to make sure that you had a catch. Like, was there like a friend with you or whatever? That no. Brought, really? Because this guy was like, no. oh yeah, it seemed like he had someone that he brought in just in case no one else wanted to have a catch with him. No, I, here's what happened. <laughs> when guys wanted to have a catch with me and they didn't want to stop, I wasn't putting a time limit on it. I wasn't like a ride at Disney World where I'm like, okay, you've had your five throws on to the next. I was having a catch specifically with two guys. I forget their names. One was a lefty, and the other one, I don't know his name. They were they were doing great. Like, I wasn't going to kick them out. So, no, I did not bring any friends. I didn't bring a ringer. I'm just, uh, I'm a man of the people, people. Oh, wait, did it get too, did it get awkward? Like, it got too long. Like, it's like, all right, dude, I, I got to do something else now. Can we stop playing catch? No, because I didn't want to stop. I... <laughs> I was good. So what I was doing is having a catch and then talking to people. Like people would come over, hey, love the show, hate the show, want to talk Mets, whatever it was. So I'm we're doing it while I I thought this was perfect. I'm talking to people while having a catch, and Craig's talking to people while cooking meat. Nothing <laughs> exemplifies our show more than that. That so, is that that is phenomenal. So that caller was wrong. There was no ringer. <laughs> it was just me. me having a catch with people. But that was a lot of fun. And then, yes, the game. But here's the point. Lead off double, Brandon Nemo. You got to score this run. You got to score this run. And the architect of our radio station says to me, right as Marte steps up, hey, Evan, 
That's not really his voice, but I'm throwing it out there. Hey, Evan, should Marte bunt? And I looked back and said, no, should Marte bunt? What are you, high? First pitch, pop up to center field. You see, Evan, he should have bunted. <laughs> and look, I yes, you figured this was going to be a low-scoring game. Yes, it could have been a one nothing game. Doesn't mean I would have taken the bat out of Starling Marte's hands. So I don't regret saying, no, he shouldn't have bunted. But it was really imperative they got that run home. You are facing an all-time great pitcher, and even off Tommy John surgery, is still at the top of his game. May not be striking as many guys out, but the dude's got a low two ERA. He's had like two bad starts the entire year. The rest of it has been pure dominance. You have got to get that run home. And there are certain things in life that sound like cliches, but they're not because they're true. When you face an all-time great pitcher, if you don't get to them early, you don't get to them at all. I learned that as a kid watching baseball. Justin Verlander today was an example of that. Because think about it. After the leadoff double and the Alonzo walk, Justin Verlander would go on and pitch seven more innings. The New York Mets would have one base runner, and that would be a swinging bunt by Ender and Ciarte, in which I thought, I think it was Bregman who made the throw. Shouldn't have picked the ball up. I thought it was rolling foul. Maybe it was Castro. That was the only base runner the Mets had from the second inning on. So that cliche couldn't have been more accurate. He was dominant. And the Mets had good swings on him in the first inning, good contact on him in the first inning. And if Marte advances him, and he didn't, he had a fly ball to center field. If he advances Nimmo to third, and I don't know, does Dusty bring the infield in in the bottom of the first inning? I don't know. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe Lindor's ground ball turns into a one nothing game and everything is different. But they had their shot. They had their shot against Verlander. It was the only shot they had in this game. This was a mow-down. This was a mow-down game. Because even in the ninth inning, once they were down by two and they're facing Ryan Presley, who Yankee fans would lick their chops at, he made it look easy against Nimmo, Marte, and Lindor. So this was an anemic offensive performance, and it all came from not being able to take advantage of the opportunity in the first inning. Now, here's my issue with Buck. Buck did something that was so awesome in this game. And yes, I was schmoozing with clients as it was happening, but I was still sort of locked in. Taiwan Walker gets the leadoff man out in the eighth inning. I don't even know how he did it. My dad was scoring the game for me at this point because, again, I'm you know talking to clients. Great job picking the seventh and eighth inning of this game for us to do that. But, and Craig didn't care. Like to him, he's like, whatever, great. It's like, I'm not, I don't have to watch this game now for a few more innings. So all of a sudden as I'm up there and I know there's one out, nobody on. And I glance up, I hear the trumpets. I hear the trumpets. Here comes Edwin Diaz. And I love it. This is what I want as a fan. And this is what I want from my manager. Why'd I love it? You've got the top of the order coming up. You've got Jose Altuve. You've got Jeremy Pena, who's had a good year. You've got Jordan Alvarez, who you barely can get out. And you go to your best reliever. I mean, that's that's what you should do. What, are you going to save him? What are you saving him for? You're going to go to Drew Smith in the eighth inning? No, no. You go to your best reliever. And even though it wasn't easy, obviously, Diaz hits Altuve, gives up the base hit to Pena, 
to Diaz's credit, he strikes out Jordan. He strikes out Bregman. He throws 14 pitches. And because the Mets have an off day on Thursday, because the Mets had an off day on Monday, because the fact that Diaz hadn't pitched since Saturday, logic told me he's going to pitch the ninth. This is going to be a five-out opportunity for Edwin Diaz. And then he comes out of the game. I didn't understand that. It's not as if Diaz threw 30 pitches. He threw 14 pitches. You have another off day coming up. I also thought that this was the kind of game, and Buck's done this before, where you say bigger than other games. We've lost two in a row. The off days that I mentioned, I thought he did that with the Dodger game, that finale against the Dodgers where he treated it when he went to Diaz in the eighth inning as, hey, this is more important of a game. I was very surprised and disappointed that he goes to Drew Smith. Now, this is on Drew Smith. You know, Drew Smith is supposed to be, after Diaz, their most reliable reliever, and he's the one that gave up the two-run home run of Jason Castro. But I, I didn't love that. Uh, to me, Buck should have left Diaz in this game, finished the ninth inning. Does it change anything? Did the Mets just lose the game in the 10th inning? Maybe so. I, I don't know. Probably so. Whatever. So that one disappointed me. You agree with that off, or am I being too hard on uh, Buck? I mean, I listened to his post game, and he sounded like he didn't really want to even pitch Edwin Diaz in that game at all. It seemed like he wanted him to give like a long layoff. I don't know why. He was like, with the extra day, we want we didn't really want to get it. We wanted to give him more time off, so we gave him the 14 pitches. But here's my question to you: Do you think because right after after Edwin Diaz gets out of that inning, that's the Pena and Alvarez injury, right? Do you think that lengthy delay? caused him to say, you know what, Diaz, sit this one out. You you were up, you did well, we, you did what we needed you to do, sit this, the rest of the game out. Do you think that had anything, anything to do with it at all? I mean, it may have. Look, that was a very lengthy delay, and I was hoping that was going to affect Verlander because Justin Verlander's out in left field, like, checking them out. Um, look, I, I get in the regular season using things like that or what Buck said in his postgame of, hey, Edwin's thrown a lot this year. I didn't want to extend him. I get that. But when you're using them in the eighth inning, even though it's against their best hitters, it does seem with the off days around it, this would have been the moment to extend him. Like, I get it. You can't ask Edwin Diaz to throw 30 pitches every time he's out there. Nor am I suggesting that. But there are certain times in a schedule in which it makes sense or more sense to do it on a given day. And because of the off days, because he hadn't pitched, it, to me, seemed like it made the most sense. I don't think the layoff should matter, but I guess it could have. And look, ultimately, it doesn't change the fact that Drew Smith failed and the Mets couldn't hit. It's just when Diaz came in that game, I don't know if you thought the same thing watching it, I assumed he was going to get the ninth inning. I looked at it as he's getting five outs. Yeah, I I, I 100% thought that. I expected like Verlander to be out, especially because of uh, the fact that it seemed like the length of delay. It seemed like he was hitting 100 pitches or whatever it is. That was done, so it was like, perfect. Give Edwin Diaz the ninth, and then we're going to hit their their closer or whoever the bullpen guy is, and that puts us in a good situation. And instead, it was Drew Smith serving a beach ball. Yeah. Look, and it's – I hate to say how many different things the Mets need to add at the trade deadline because none of us want to see them mortgage their entire farm system. But obviously, they need another arm out of the bullpen. Like, Drew Smith has had a good season. I don't want to sit here and just lambast him all the time. 
but this is not a great bullpen. I mean, it's obvious. They don't have guys that you really trust. Edwin Diaz is number one on that list by a lot. And, and I give Edwin credit. Even after he gave up the hit to, to, to Pena and there's two on and one out and you're facing Jordan and Bregman, I, I sort of had a confidence. You know, Edwin Diaz is, he hasn't been perfect, but there was a, le- a little bit level of confidence that Diaz was going to be able to get out of it. And to his credit, he did it. He did it against two of the Astros' best hitters. But it's a weakness that the second guy in your bullpen you go to, the most reliable pitcher after Diaz, is the one that gives up a home run to a guy who ain't very good in Jason Castro. Yeah, that was disgusting. And, and Edwin Diaz really did put on a pair. Like, he showed his balls right there. Like, that, not to be vulgar or whatever, but the reality is he could have imploded, and in past he would have. But this year has yeah. been so yeah. different, man. So it's, you got you got to tip your cap to him. But again, like, I, I don't know. Where else are you supposed to go? If it's not Drew Smith, it's Adam Adovino throwing up a, a meatball too. No, 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 no. It's Drew Smith's the guy. Like, I don't have any criticism of using Drew Smith. It was more, maybe you could have gotten three more outs out of Diaz. And if Smith, Smith's the guy coming in the 10th inning anyway. I mean, let's face it. Like, if Edwin gets the ninth, pitches the ninth, I don't think the Astros would have used Ryan Presley in a tie game. But whatever, whoever they use mows the Mets down because they haven't hit in a while. You're going to go to Drew Smith in the 10th inning. I mean, if I'm making a list of all the Met relievers and I'm saying, all right, what's my circle of trust level? To me, it's Edwin Diaz, number one. It's Drew Smith, number two. And then there's a huge drop-off before you get to Seth Lugo and Adam Adovino. And then what, Joely Rodriguez? No. So No. Jason <laughs> Shreve, no. get out of here. We've seen that, We've seen that play oh happen. Oh, my God. I, I'm ready for the DFA Jason Shreve already. I mean, he is just a kerosene on the fire. Can we get Miguel Castro back, please? <laughs> I tell you, he drove me nuts too with all his walks and whatnot. He did, but I mean, what a, what what an embarrassing trade. We never make trades with the Yankees, it's and then not, we give away. Let's not act like Miguel Castro is freaking uh, Rob Dibble in his prime. I mean, Jolie Rodriguez. Which, by the well, way, I, I ran I, to Rob Dibble last week. Nice guy. I, <laughs> I don't know why I used Rob Dibble as the example of a elite reliever. I just. In that moment when Dibble was great. I remember when Rob Dibble gave up a game-winning home run to Chase Stadium and he ripped the shirt off. It was classic. He was with the oh, Reds. Yeah. yeah. Just like, just rip that bitch off. <laughs> but either way, it looks like Max will be back soon. It looks like Jake will begin his rehab soon. But again, you got to start that clock once he uh, gets going. But they got to get the offense going. And hopefully they'll add a jolt with Francisco Alvarez. Now, one thing I wanted to get to, we'll spend a few minutes on this is that, and this is a fantasy world. It's a fantasy world. But as Met fans, we can now live in a little bit of a fantasy world. And I touched on this last week briefly, or at least I, I talked about talking about it last week. And that is, Aaron Judge is a free agent. And he's having an amazing year. He's the best player in baseball right now, or at least one of the best players in baseball. Should we, as the New York Mets, go after Aaron Judge? The following year, Shohei Otani is a free agent. Should we go after Shohei Otani? So I did put it out on Twitter as a Met fan, and I left Juan Soto out. The only reason I left Juan Soto out is that's another year. Now we're talking NBA-style stuff, like, hey, let's wait three years till LeBron's a free agent. Judge is at the end of this season. It's very realistic that the Mets at least try to approach him. And Otani is super realistic because even though there's another year after, Otani's a megastar. And I wonder if the Angels, 
with the failures that they've had and the fact that they pay another megastar in Mike Trout and they're stuck with that Anthony Rendon contract, which is just horrific. I don't. I wonder if the Angels are going to offer him big-time money. So I put it on Twitter. I didn't do it as a poll. I didn't say Judge versus Otani. I wanted comments because I have an opinion on the subject. I know Pete has an opinion on the subject, but you're talking about two great players, very different, obviously, and you have an owner who's capable, okay? An owner that I happen to think is very willing to go out and add another big-time free agent, even with their own free agents, they need to take care of. So before I get to some of these comments, because I got a ton of them, I got 500 of them. I'm not going to read all of them. That would take a while. But I would certainly skim through a few of them. Before I give you my opinion, Pete, this is a very tough question for you, and I'm going to tell you why it's a tough question for you before you answer. Go for it. With all due respect to Brandon Tierney, he does a great (laughs) job doing the Midday Show. Brandon Tierney is an obnoxious Yankee fan. I think we all know that. Uh, yeah. I'm an obnoxious Met fan. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I believe that Brandon Tierney would cry on the radio if Aaron Judge was a New York Met. I believe it would hurt him to his Yankee fan's soul. And while Pete's a nice guy, I think Pete would drink the tears. I think he would collect the tears in a bottle. And then I think he would suck it down and drink it every night before he went to bed. I, that, it is fair if that's a part of your reasoning. I cannot argue with you. So, with that said, Judge Otani, go ahead. Before I get into that, you should have still made it a poll because you would have got the 500 comments anyway, and it's tough to figure out which way people are leaning. But to me, I'll simply put it this way. Aaron Judge is the best and the biggest superstar in baseball today. He's proven in New York that he can do it at the top stage. He's going to win a World Series. He's definitely going to win an MVP this year. He's going to win a World Series with the Yankees, potentially, if they can get past the Astros and the Mets. But I think that's the way to go. And here's the other reason why, too, and it's a little bit deeper dive. Everyone always talks about injuries, right? Well, if Aaron Judge, you can never stay healthy. That's fine. But if Shohei Otani, someone that you rely upon to pitch and to hit, gets injured significantly, whether it's his leg, so like a leg injury, he can't run, he can't pitch, that's two spots you have to fill. So you're relying on his pitching and his hitting. Judge, I just worried about his offense. His defense is great, but it's not necessary because you could put other people to fill his position on the field. But his bat is huge. Yeah, I, you know what I'm so mixed about with this? I am very skeptical, and it's to, to the point that you made about Otani. I'm very skeptical that five years from now, Shohei Otani is a two-way player. Uh, it's incredible what he's done over the last two seasons. He's a monster offensively, and he's a very good pitcher. I'm not saying he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. There are times in which he looks like one of the best pitchers in baseball. I would need more consistency for that. I just think that if I sign him, to a mega, and he's going to demand a mega contract. He's going to demand a mega contract for two reasons. Number one, he is such a superstar. He's a box office attraction, and that matters. And that may that may well matter to the Mets, by the way, who lost the attendance battle to the Yankees today by ten thousand. Okay, the Mets are not doing well compared to the Yankees. I'm not talking about wins and losses. I'm talking about box office. They just aren't. And I love the Mets, and ultimately, you could argue that doesn't matter. 
that matters to some in that organization who are trying to make a ton of money and sell tickets. And Otani is a box office attraction. But if I sign him, and it's going to take a ridiculous amount of money, I'd have to view him as someone who will eventually be just a hitter. That's how I'd view him. Because I... And look, what what am I basing this on? I can't be basing it on anything because we've never seen a two-way player. And, and neither can you for anyone out there who says, give me Otani's a pitcher and a hitter and you're crazy. He'll stay healthy for five years. None of us can say it based on anything. We've never seen anything like it. Otani had injuries early in his career. So did Judge. But the idea of every five or six days throwing 80 to 90 pitches, throwing 98 miles an hour, and all the different ways a pitcher can get hurt, and pitchers do get hurt. And then, like you said, playing every day as an offensive player, four or five at-bats, and all the different ways offensive players can get hurt, and how one injury could affect both jobs, an injury pitching could keep you from hitting, that worries me. So, in theory, if you're telling me this Otani that you're watching right now, He'll do it for five years. It's a no-brainer. It's Shohei Otani. If you're telling me a guy's going to be able to do it, it's Shohei Otani. He's the most valuable player in baseball. I agree with that. You tell me a guy's going to make 30 starts a year and hit 30 home runs? (laughs) He could be a mediocre starting pitcher. He'll be worth it. He could be my fourth starter, and that would be the most insane value known to man. I'm just skeptical. And... Maybe that's an old school thought. Maybe I just still can't get my head wrapped around what he's doing. But I'm scared of what he's doing. Judge is a slugging superstar and he's the best player on the New York Yankees. I don't think it's close. I know he didn't mean to say it the other day, but he is. He's the best player on the team. He is one of those few guys. Daryl Strawberry certainly had it. Barry Bonds certainly had it. Uh, Mark McGuire certainly had it. I'll go down a level. Mo Vaughn had it. Not with the Mets, but with the Red Sox. Where you stop everything that you're doing when that guy comes to the plate. And what we've seen from him this year is this incredibly complete season. I've always said this to Yankee fans when we've ever talked about Aaron Judge. Before this season, I said he's underrated. Because when he plays, he's really, really good to the point where I don't even think he gets enough credit for how good he is. He's always been a great defensive player. Now he's playing center field. He's always been screwed by the low strike, still happening to this day. And the question with Aaron Judge has always been, can he stay healthy? That's it. So far, he's answered that question. He answered it last year. He's answered it this year. And despite being two years older, I think it's two years older, I would have more confidence in his ability to stay healthy than Shohei Otani's because of what Otani is doing and how abnormal it is. So... Money aside, years aside, because they may demand different contracts, my answer would be Aaron Judge. So I'm in agreement. And I think I'm, I'll tell you, a lot of these Twitter mentions are just douche Yankee fans who are very upset that I would dare mention Aaron Judge's name and the Mets in the same sentence. Like, Ryan Fee 93. (laughs) Why don't you focus on this season rather than covet superstars on other teams? Is it because your season is crumbling before your eyes? This in Ryan Fee. They've lost three in a row for the first time all year. I was going to talk about this before they lost the two games to the Astros. And you want to know why I wanted to talk about it? You know why I think it's a fun discussion? 
Because we as Met fans have never been allowed to have a discussion like this before. I would never have brought this up two years ago when we were in the Will Pond regime. So yeah, obviously the focus is this year. But the fact that we as Met fans who are still reveling in the fact that Steve Cohen owns the team. Like, I think it's kind of fun every once in a while to talk about all the freaking awesome things our billionaire owner could do. So you know what Ryan Fees could do, Pete? He could what? kiss my ass. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's see what Let's Go Mets 129 has to say. <laughs> I want no part of Aaron Judge. If the Mets sign him, he'll fall off a cliff and the Yankees and their fans will laugh at us. <laughs> That's such a Met fan response. Ben, the super fan, says, I'd go Otani. For the simple fact, he's a two-way player. I don't think Cohen would go after Judge because the Yankees didn't oppose him as an owner, but who knows? Let me just say this. It's a very good point by Ben, the superfan. Not that he wouldn't try to bid on a Yankee player, because I think if a player is a great player and if the player can make your team better, you're going to do it. But I do think he'd try to screw Artie Moreno. Like, I think there would be a vengeful, okay, Artie, you don't want me to own the team? You wanted to create a Steve Cohen tax? Okay. Okay, we can play that game. That's fine. I'm going to steal Otani. I'm going to steal your soul. So I could see that. Uh, Scott with a bunch of numbers. I want nothing to do with Aaron Judge. Nothing to do with Aaron Judge. Too old and expensive. Let him enjoy his third career 30 home run season. Let him break down each year in San Francisco for eight years, $320 million. I, I do admit that when you're signing a guy in their 30s, there are ri- there, there's risk, obviously. There's risk. Now, I did get a lot of this, okay? Mark, video Mark, I don't want either. I'd rather build a core through the farm system and have a perennial winner. Why can't you do both? Like, the Yankees have been able to do both in the past. Teams are able to do both. You're able to sign big free agents, and develop your farm system. And we have an owner that can do that. Like, that's the, yes. that's the thing. It's, it's time where we can actually envision all of that and more. Yes. Now, th- this one I do understand. I'm not a fan of signing anyone to a monster 10-year contract. Trading for Lindor was awesome, but the contract was unnecessary. I know to be competitive in this sport, it's just a reality, but still, I never feel comfortable with really long guaranteed contracts. They rarely end well. No, I, he's totally right about that. And I think when you sign somebody, whether it's Aaron Judge, whether it's Shohei Otani, whether it's Francisco Lindor, <clears throat> you have to realize that the end of the contract is going to be bad. And I think that's almost the deal you make upon making it, that you say to yourself, okay, the end of this is going to be awful. Uh, I think the risk you run into is if you align too many of these long-term contracts, you don't want four really bad contracts at the exact same time. You know what I mean? So that I do fully, fully understand. Ken Parsons is thinking what we're thinking. Judge, Otani can't pitch and play the field forever. He doesn't play the field, but he hits. You know what I mean? Uh, Omar says, Otani's off the table, you numbnuts. He didn't write numbnuts. I added that. He wants no part of playing in New York. Remember, he took less to play for the Angels. I don't think he took less to play for the Angels, but he is right that Otani didn't want to play here. 
he wanted to play on the West Coast and pick the Angels. But here's the thing that's very different. He's been in the major leagues now for almost a half a decade. I don't know if his view is exactly the same. That's number one. And number two, money's going to matter. You know, I, I can't see if the Mets or the Yankees, because the Yankees could be a factor, especially if they ever lost Aaron Judge. If somebody offers you $50 million a year and your next highest bid from a California team is a lot less, you're probably taking the money. So I, I can't look back to what happened and say he wouldn't do it. We can't say that. Now, I never thought CeCe Sabathia would come to New York, but the Yankees made the biggest offer when he came here. Here's the other opinion that's very popular, Pete, and I want your thoughts on this. Jason Dill. I don't want either of them because we need to spend talent on what we have right now. The idea that they got to pay Alonzo, they have to keep Jake, at least I hope they keep Jake, assuming he could pitch. Uh, you're going to have to pay Jeff McNeil. Brandon Nimmo's a free agent. Edwin Diaz is a free agent. That the priority should be all the guys they have to retain and how high their payroll would be simply in doing that. Well, it's interesting. I was actually going to throw this out after we went through all these tweets is, who would you prefer, a DeGrom for 200-plus mil or Aaron Judge for 300-plus mil? I mean, I feel like that's a possible debate if he's really going to opt out. But I, I think that, honestly, you could still sign McNeil for a reasonable contract. He's not making hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Alonzo may be the superstar that you're really going to pay. But besides that, DeGrom as well, I, I think everyone else is, is serviceable contracts. You still, And again, Steve Cohen doesn't care. Do we really care? Do we think that Steve Cohen may up a payroll to $350 million? I think he's okay with that. I'm yeah, okay I mean, it. look, I, I think that, and I don't know if it's necessarily going to be with Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani. The one thing I think is going to happen over the next few years is we are going to see him be a stargazer. I get that impression. Like, he is going to want box office. And I don't think that a payroll restrictions are necessarily going to stop him. So it's the reason I bring it up because I do get that sense from Cohen that he's going to be a big game hunter. And the one thing that may be a factor, and I don't know if Steve Cohen is thinking this way, I know some Met fans are thinking this way, is that if the New York Mets ever outbid the New York Yankees for Aaron Judge, that would be, whether it works or not, by the way, it doesn't mean the Mets go win the World Series, it doesn't mean Aaron Judge wins three MVPs, but that moment, that day that Aaron Judge is sitting on a dais and the uh, the, the charcuterie Shakur, board, whatever it's called, is out and it's a big press conference and Aaron, charcuterie board. What's it called again, Pete? I have no idea. The board with the meat and the cheeses. You know it. Uh, I, my wife knows it. I know it as the, the board with the meats and cheeses. <laughs> Stacurterie, but whatever it's called. Craig would know, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> when the press conference is going on, that's, that's a game-changing moment in this town. And that's not my focus. I'm being honest with you. It's not. My focus is Aaron Judge is a great player. And getting to watch him every day, I've understood that for a while. Like, that's not anything crazy to me. But I do think for some Met fans, and maybe for this owner, we don't know yet, still new, that's bigger than anything. Being the guy who takes away the Yankees' best player? Like, that's... And he is their best player. I don't think there's any question. Like, 
the Yankees have to sign Aaron Judge. To me, it would be insane for them not to. So I wonder if that's a big impact for some Met fans and for Steve Cohen himself. But it's a, it's a fun discussion, and the reason I bring it up, and I don't think a lot of people fully understood it, is it's also a cool baseball debate. The idea of a two-way player, a guy who can hit for the pop that Aaron Judge has, but can also pitch. Like, is that guy the end-all, be-all? Like, would you want that guy over anybody in baseball because of the fact he does two things no human being can do? And you think that, like, are they equivalent as far as finances go? Like, you said, you said... Shohei may be worth $50 million a year, but he does both. Do you think Aaron right. Judge could be potentially $50 million a year, at least in the front-loaded contract? Aaron Judge is a... Look, Shohei Otani had 46 home runs last year. I, I don't want to poo-poo anything he did. He had a 960 OPS. Offensively, just offensively, he was probably the second-best player in the American League last year behind Vlad Guerrero Jr., this year, he hasn't been as good, but he's probably going to go 3,100 again. As good as he is offensively, he's not as good as Aaron Judge offensively. I'm sorry. Like, Aaron Judge, at his best, is better than Shohei Otani. Now, Aaron Judge is also three and a half years older, which I have to acknowledge. So, if we're looking at Otani strictly as an offensive player, Aaron Judge is better. Plus, Aaron Judge plays the field, and he's really good at it. Shohei Otani doesn't play the field. When you factor in a guy who can pitch, too... And if you assume, let me pull up his numbers this year. Uh, six and four, two nine ERA, 12 starts, 68 innings. Very good. He's not the best pitcher in baseball, but very good. I mean, he's a Cy Young contender. You know, he's probably still trailing McClanahan and Nestor Cortez and Garrett Cole, but he's had a very good year. And you Pearl follow Andrew. up last year in which he was very good. That, if he's that, Pete, if he does both of those things, He's worth what a top-line starter makes, which is $30 million a year. And he's worth what an offensive player makes, which is $30 million a year. So based on that, he's worth $60 million. So where am I wrong? Well, no. I, well, here's the thing is, I said this. I think that Aaron Judge at the point now where he's going to sign upwards of $400 million. And I think that people think it's absurd. But realistically, you can front-load the contract for, say, take it in two parts. Aaron Judge, five years, 250. That seems, I know, absurd, but not really because he's the face of the Yankees. He's an MVP caliber player. He's that good with the bat. Then you take the second half of the of the, the contract, five for 150. Now, there's still a lot of money, but you're going to bring the numbers down and, and, and they're going to regress as, as his career goes, as he gets older. They're going to dip a little bit more. So maybe at the end, when he's 40, 41 years old, he's really only making $20 million. I think that you can actually work that out. So, yeah, $50 million seems not absurd for Otani. It seems a little bit lowballing. But it's it's assuming he can do both. Like, Shohei Otani made 23 starts last year. He's made pretty much all of his starts this year. Can he make 30 starts a year? Like, I'm saying he's worth that if he's making 30 starts a year and he's getting 500 at-bats a year. He hasn't done that. Like last year, he made 23 starts. He had a very good year through 130 innings. That's not really a full, full year as a starting pitcher. Now, granted, he didn't throw a lot the year before that, and the year before that, he didn't pitch at all. So I understand that they were never going to let him throw 180 innings. I totally acknowledge that. But he's worth $50, $60 million a year. 
if he's making 30 starts a year and if he's the bat he is. I would, if I'm signing Shohei Otani, I'm taking the cautious approach that I'm probably going to end up with just the offensive player. That it's not sustainable that he's going to make 30 starts a year and get 500 at-bats a year. So that's why I lean towards Judge in the debate between the two. But in theory, if you're telling me he could do both, he's the most valuable player in baseball. Do you, and here's a real impressive comp, or I think it's impressive, but other people think it's ridiculous, it's apples and oranges. Garrett Cole, for example. How much is he making per year? 35, uh, 36 million, I think he's at. Right. He's only making 35 starts. Everyone says the injury-prone Aaron Judge. If he only plays 100 games, is he really worth $40 million, $35 million? Question to you, what is more important? Aaron Judge, 100 games in a season, play in the field with the bat, or Garrett Cole, 35 starts? Probably Garrett Cole, 35 starts, only because it is so difficult to find that consistent, top-level starting pitcher. Do you? Can I remind you, he's pitched about three or four games that he couldn't get past the fifth inning? Come on now. Garrett, Garrett Cole, though. But, but, but that's... Okay, do you want me to remind you of games where Aaron Judge went 0-4 for with four strikeouts? And the, like, and the team lost. And the Yankees <laughs> lost. And the offense didn't exist. That's the point. Aaron Judge is the offense. If Aaron Judge wasn't on the Yankees this year, they would not be who Oh, they no, no. Are. So you're, you're asking me specifically to the New York Yankees in this situation or the idea of a starting pitcher and the value of having a guy. It's more about this specific scenario. Okay, okay. My, my only point about the importance, excuse me, of starters is that how many guys in the last five years are as consistently good as Garrett Cole in terms of effectiveness and in terms of pitching every five days? Go make that list and let me know. Like, who's on that list? Justin Verlander just missed an entire season for Tommy John. Jacob deGrom hasn't pitched in a year. Max Scherzer's now been an injury-prone guy. Clayton Kershaw's been an injury-prone guy. Oh, but no, no, Evan Walker Bueller, he's a, uh, how's that going for you? <laughs> like, this isn't, I'm not trying to put Garrett Cole in the Hall of Fame right now, but what I am telling you is a guy who makes 30 starts a year and consistently pitches to like a low three ERA and makes every start, that's effing valuable because I just dared you for the last five years, give me the guys who do, who do it. No one there's, does. There's nobody, yeah. Look at that. It turns so, into oh, an appreciation of Garrett Cole. So Otani, Otani, $70 million. Got it. Okay, $70 million a year. <laughs> Look, I'll tell you, man, if he goes out and makes 30 starts this year and then makes 30 starts next year, he may get that. <laughs> he may get that. I, I end everybody with a little bit of confidence. Okay, I was negative going into this Houston series. I turned out to be right. I didn't want to be right. I also have confidence now going into this Texas and Cincinnati series. You know, I'm seeing it on Twitter right now. The Mets' season's collapsing. They're falling apart. Really? Their first three-game losing streak of the year, and now they suck, and now they're awful. And yes, if they succeed against Texas and Cincinnati, they beat up on bad teams. I don't care. What I care about is winning this National League East. The lead is down to three games. It is getting tight. It's going to remain tight. The Braves are not going away. There's going to be a podcast where the Mets aren't in first place. I do. I think it's going to be a back and forth NL East. I'm telling you right now. But I have confidence going into this weekend. I think the bats will start to wake up. And I think they will succeed and win two out of three against Texas. 
and then all three against Cincinnati. That's right. I'm predicting five out of six. And if they don't, then we collectively press the panic button. All together. Thank you for listening to this edition of Rico Bronya, our Mets podcast. Pete will be producing Tiki. I don't know where Brandon is. He may have retired, so it's just the Tiki Barber Show from 10 to 2 on the fan. And Craig and I will occasionally do some afternoon drive shows. We may be taking some vacations. But remember, you can always catch the Rico after every series. We'll talk to you next after they wrap up the series against the Texas Rangers. Download the podcast wherever you download podcasts. Review it if you want to. Whatever people say at the end of podcasts, do all that crap. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.